In this episode, International Booker Award winning translator Michelle Hutchinson talks about the craft of translation, her work and her translation of We Are Light. We Are Light is an exquisitely translated novel in which obsession, mental illness and deferred dreams lead to complex compounding tragedies. Michelle Hutchinson is a literary translator from Dutch and French into English. A former commissioning editor at various top publishing houses, she has translated more than 40 books from Dutch and one from French. She received the Wandel Translation Prize 2019 for Stage 4, her English translation of Sander Collard's Stadium 4. In 2020, The Discomfort of Evening, her translation of Lucas Reinwald's novel was awarded the International Booker Prize. Hutchison is also co-author of uh, The Happiest Kids in the World: What We Can Learn from Dutch Parents. To buy the book We Are Light, you may use the link given in the show notes. Welcome Michelle. Thank you for uh, accepting our invitation and coming out to our podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. I gather that uh, you are very shy when you are young. Is that the reason uh, you are drawn to reading? Yes, yes. I definitely felt uncomfortable about talking. Um I'm worried about saying the wrong thing perhaps. Um so I think I was quite self-conscious. Um and I I uh, part of my childhood I lived in the countryside in England. Um where there wasn't very much to do apart from, you know, go for walks and ride horses and stuff. Um so uh reading was obviously, you know, something to pass the time and and I I started reading when I was very little and I read and read and read and I read all the books I could get my hands on basically yeah that was a yeah sense of sense of solace you know taste to go and hide in the books okay any any influence from the parents yeah i did i didn't see my parents reading very much my my mother reads now but she didn't at the time not very much anyway um so i was the real bookworm and and getting on these books in my bedroom and um I filled the bookcases and I I started piling up them up against the wall so I had a, one whole wall that was filled with with books just just stacked up what kind of literature you used to read back then I read um poetry um I can remember reading a lot of Philip Larkin um but I also read things like Tennyson um <laughs> like classical poetry or or the romantic poets or uh Shakespeare Uh I think I read all of Shakespeare at the time. Um and um Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy or the other English greats. Um not not much in translation, it was mainly English literature. So the University of East Anglia and the University of Lund and the University of Cambridge. Mm. Are among the top institutions in the world for teaching literature. Mm. Yeah, how do you think spending time in these places has shaped your literary temper? I think UEA that's the University of East Anglia was was massively important in shaping me as a person and also my literary sensibility um was a really fantastic place at the time with a lot of um really brilliant teachers um and writers creative writing was already happening there um and it was a very um relaxed place um we had seminars with a small amount of students we talked a lot um there was an open door policy so you could 
go in to talk to your lecturer and, and carry on the chat you've been having earlier. Um, there was a lot of support. Um, I, I wonder about institutions now where they've packed in so many students, whether they get the, the same kind of um, support and inspiration that, that I got back then. University of East Anglia, especially, I think they have one of the best uh, department for translation studies, I guess. That's right. Yeah, the British Centre for Literary Translation is based there. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, stuff on the YouTube, so many lectures, discussions and all that. Yeah, definitely check them out online. Um, and they make they record short talks about all kinds of things to do with translation and, and publishing. And yeah, really useful. Tell about your stint in editing to begin with. Yeah, so after, after graduating from Cambridge for my master's, um, I wanted to get into publishing and I, and I ended up as a junior at Penguin. And I got trained by a, a very good editor there, who's still there, Simon Prosser. He, um, he showed me the ropes um, and I got involved in reading books in foreign languages that for the publisher to acquire. Um, and that became my course um, because I could read a few languages and, and not that many people could. Um, I became like the first reader for, for books from different countries, uh, European countries. and. Uh, uh, yeah, I became a translations editor, acquired translations, but also worked with English um, writers as well. So it wasn't wasn't only translations; it was also um, development editing with with novelists and nonfiction writers in English. How long uh, did you work as an editor? From the late nineties, um, let's see, and then halfway through two thousands, I moved to Holland when I was pregnant, and I worked in foreign rights for a while and then became an editor here as well uh, for a Dutch publishing house. So in total, maybe 15 years of editing. So you have been translating all the way or you started late after editing? Mm, I started translating when I moved to Holland. Um, around 2006, 2007, I started translating. Um, I was selling rights in it, and um, there's a limited budget for sample translation, so I started making some myself uh, from Dutch into English. So why the switch from editing to translations? I don't. I don't think. I think the things are complementary. Editing and translating are kind of similar activities. Obviously, with translation, you spend months and months with a book, and, and as an editor, it's weeks. So in terms of time, but. Um, in terms of it being a quiet activity where you're concentrating on a text written by someone else, then it's a similar activity. Um, and so I, I, I combine both quite a long time. So I, I, I translate a couple of days a week and work as an editor on the other days. That's an interesting observation. Both they look at the same text, they keep on looking at the same text. So as an editor, when you edit translations, so what are the common faults that you look for? I think it's important to remember what the, the, the source text uh, is going to have certain tons of phrase that are not going to translate directly. <laughs> and, and so if you do that, then it's going to sound a little odd in English. And, and it should only sound odd in English if it sounds odd in the original text. So you should, you should aim for something that creates the same effect in translation. Um, and so people say things in different ways in different languages. 
So, for example, Dutch has got a lot of hands and eyes and, and shoulders doing things when they're describing movement. So they say, I, I shrugged my shoulders. <laughs> but you, all you need to say in English is I, is I shrugged. You don't have to say my shoulders. Or I, I picked something up with my hand. In English, you just picked it up. Obviously, the hand is, is implied. So, yeah, watching out for that kind of thing. So when and how did you decide to become a translator? And tell us about your first published work. That was, like I said, doing samples to sell the rights. And then I got asked by a publisher that I'd already worked with whether I'd translate a book. Um, and I was, um, I think it was, I can't remember which one came first, but I did a thriller by Simone van der Flucht. Um, I think that was probably the first one. Um, and then I had uh, maternity leave with my second child and I translated a book during maternity leave. Yeah. Basically, that was my second maternity leave, and the first one I found really, really boring. So <laughs> it was nice to have something to do during the second one. Yeah. So you knew Dutch before you moved to Holland, is it? No, no, I learned it here. You learned it uh, there, and you started translating once you moved to Holland. Yeah, I did evening classes um, in Amsterdam when I when I first got here, and um, so it probably took me about two years to learn Dutch. All in all. And then obviously I'm still learning Dutch to this day, you know, you, you, as a non-native, you, yeah. And you went ahead and you got a booker for your translation. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, really nice. Really nice. See, one thing I keep wondering, because most of the translators that we get to interview, because we are doing a series of interviews with uh, various translators across the world. Um, most of them are UK and some of them are from USA. And UK is mostly monolingual, as I understand, at least. No. So, why are there so many translators doing great work? Um, I think you, if you come from a basically monolingual country in that, uh, it's not even monolingual. I, I want to first unpack that and say that's, that's a myth, isn't it? Because there's so many people in England who, who speak many other languages. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's Welsh and, you know, there's even another official language. And, and um, so the monolingualism is, is, is a certain section of society that's monolingual. It, it, you know, it's, it's the kind of white British people who, who don't have connections with other countries um, and are terrified of speaking foreign languages so it's kind of not cool to try and speak a language with a proper foreign accent so they'll pronounce french in the way it would sound if it was english and, and that kind of thing um so given that background if, if you do decide to do languages and you understand how important they are <laughs> for the world then, then you, you need to be a, a bit of an activist in, in promoting um yeah language learning in general and and other cultures Maybe the institutions that may have a lot of preference for the language as such, I don't know. The language learning is more in UK, I don't know, compared to other countries. I don't think there's great language learning in the UK, to be honest. And, and I've heard that the universities are getting rid of um, language courses quite rapidly, which is very distressing. Yeah. And there's fewer and fewer students taking them. So um, something needs to happen. So you've been living in the Holland for the last few years. and. Uh, how will it impact uh, a translator who lives in the same place where the source language is spoken? Yeah, I mean, you, you get an enormous amount of cultural knowledge. So, you, you know, 
um, and you and you learn the new slang and you learn um, the cultural climate, the political climate. You learn a huge amount of context, which helps when translating. It means I think you have to look less up um, in terms of context to just understand the, the yeah what's going on or what the characters are thinking or doing. Um, but living here affects my English, so I have to work on my English and make sure that that doesn't become too rusty. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one way or the other, you know, if you live in England and you have to work on your English, you have to work on your Dutch, but yeah, and we'll keep watching Netflix and that kind of thing <laughs> and call it work. So please tell us about the contemporary Dutch literature and uh, what changes you witnessed over the last two decades regarding themes. Yeah, um, contemporary Dutch literature, um, oh, it's so hard to generalize um, because I I think I read too much of it, but I think hmm, there is a tendency to write about small things. <laughs> so people writing about their own experiences um, and and not not to be um, hugely ambitious in that. Although obviously there are great exceptions of writers who do produce like block, you know, huge. <laughs> massive books with, with hugely ambitious themes like um, Grand Hotel Europa by Leonard Pfeiffer, which I translated. But um, I think there's a lot of quiet books as well. There's a lot of writers writing like Dutch painting, maybe, <laughs> if you think about, you know, a very nice, quiet landscape. Or uh, It's hard to generalize there because, you know, there's all kinds of things going on. There's... Now, if I may ask, who are your favorite reader, uh, authors currently in Dutch? My 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 favorite writers in Dutch. The Dutchess. Is it the wrong question to ask a translator? Um. Hmm. Well, yeah, because you're supposed to name your own authors, of course, aren't you? Because then you you you've got me over a barrel. I can't say anything other than the writers that I translate. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want me to avoid that question? I'll do. That's not an issue. No, you can't. You can't translate all the authors that you like, right? You have limited time. I know that's true. That's true. Um, and there were there were writers that I see my colleague colleagues translate, my fellow translators, and and that, that I'm a little jealous of. But not so many. I'm I'm quite happy with the ones that that I work on. Yeah. Mm, tell us about your uh, interesting interactions with your readers, which helped you as a translator readers or critics or whoever reads your books and who whoever read your books and give you feedback yeah i think authors get a lot more contact with readers than translators do so um i don't get sent emails by readers or anyone writing to say they liked or didn't like my translations i, I don't have much i mean I, I look on i sometimes look on amazon and see what reviewers say on goodreads um and then and, and, you know, in general, people just want to talk about the book itself, don't they, rather than having a specific view on translation. Uh, so perhaps it's more translators who are my interested readers, <laughs> fellow translators. And then we can have interesting technical discussions on, on yeah, the choices we make. Anything interesting that you can share with us, with those interactions? Those interactions? Um, no, I work quite closely with other translators from Dutch into English. And, and we often compare our translations or help each other out or just say, how, what would you do with this particular word? And then, you know, I, I did that today with two of my colleagues. I was looking for 
a particular term for 17th century clothing and <laughs> they were very quick to help me with like <laughs> yeah where to look online you a lot of clarifications you can get from the internet right as a translator especially about uh, this stuff uh, where in 17th century 18th century a lot of stuff will be available on the net to help translate these days that's right there's a huge amount and, and i can't imagine what it was like to translate before the internet when you'd have to go to a library and, and plow through books and hope that you found a book with the right and also um i don't have access to an english library living in amsterdam so i think i don't think i could have actually lived here and been a translator without buying all the books i suppose and having my own library yeah and then uh, slang and accent right slang and accent in a language how do you handle them in translation um it's very difficult isn't it because you don't want to translocate the book into a place with a different accent so i if i suddenly used um a rural lincolnshire accent for a character from say Groningen um, in Holland as a county, um, it would sound odd to any reader who knows that that's a, that's a rural Lincolnshire accent. They they wouldn't want uh, they wouldn't want that confusion, but they would want a hint of someone having an accent. So you try and find a middle road by using a certain register, um, a certain casual language, but without using slang words that would particularly mark. Uh, characters coming from a specific English place or yeah any place from wherever the translators from coming from uh, the the writing uh, is with rural backdrop and an urban backdrop you know there are certain variations in the way they use language especially in India we do we do yeah yeah I can imagine yeah so I think something does get lost in translation um, in terms of accents So, translation is always about uh, coming closer to the original. Is that is that is that your quote? Who said that? I don't know if I agree though. I don't know if it's about coming closer to the original because normally I start really close to the original with my first draft, and then I take it further away from the original to do what I need to do to make the text work in English, and then I go through the text a third time seeing where I've taken too many liberties and then then going back a little bit towards the original. Now the question is when do you think that uh, when do you tell yourself that it's done translation is over because you can keep on tinkering it because yeah when you have to hand it in obviously <laughs> it's just just the deadline it was never done it's just <laughs> it's just that the publisher's like you know <laughs> No, you are lucky in the sense that uh, you have publishers waiting for you, but there are so many translators who have to pitch for publishing, right? Uh, right. If I was doing it without contracts, yeah, that would, yeah, 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 yeah. that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. It's the same as writing, though. I mean, when's writing done? Correct. You could Correct. just write and rewrite forever. It's the same problem. See, you also co-authored a book, interestingly, that is about parenting, right? So, how was the experience of co-authoring a book and... Uh, Tell us about the book too. Oh yeah, so that's a book about um, Dutch parenting, and and uh, UNICEF uh, <laughs> UNICEF showed that the Dutch children were the happiest in the world in 2012, I think. But the recent figures have also still um, put the Dutch as the happiest children. Um, last year's last year's figures were 
were the same again. Um, so uh, a publisher commissioned the book from me and, and Rena Mayer Costa. Um, and so I was taken on board as kind of the co-writer and, and the editor at the same time. So that was, um, in a way, it was just an extension of the work I already did as an, ed as an editor. And yeah, I got to write some of it myself. You lived in Holland for the uh, last two decades or the uh, last 10, 10 years, I think, one decade or 15 years? Longer, 19 years now. So you can write about parenting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. My, yeah, so my oldest is 19, so I came here pregnant with him, yeah. So what is so special about it? Dutch parenting? About Dutch parenting? Oh, God. I think it's about the freedom, the freedom that children have and the independence that is fostered in them. Um, and I, I noticed that um, almost as soon as I, I started living here, I, you see like kids going around on their own at a fairly young age and all the, you see the children all going to school and um, on their bikes <laughs> and playing in the parks without parents hovering over them. In, in London, there's a lot of parents with the children all the time. Yeah, I mean, it didn't used to be like that when I was growing up. Um, and it's, it, that's something that's changed, culturally changed, and, and Dutch still seems to be more like the old-fashioned way of letting children go out and play, um, letting them make mistakes, become independent, do things on their own. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a good system. Do the Dutch children read, they read books? No, it's a huge problem here. Um, I wish they did. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's often a subject in the papers about um, yeah, education is, is that the, the, the Dutch children have been put off books and um, and how has that happened? Um, there's a kind of list of books you have to read for school and you and, and they're fairly old and, and stayed. So they're, they're fairly dull classics. Um, so there's always a lot of discussion on should they change this list into something more dynamic? And they, they do add books by new writers and, and writers from different cultural backgrounds. And, and, you know, it is updated, but the bulk of the list is kind of a bit old-fashioned and, and not so appealing um, but I, I don't know what the solution is I think the school system here isn't very strict so children are encouraged to follow their own interests um, and you only need to pass at a certain level to get to university you, there's no like a and a plus culture um, so it isn't it isn't a place where they could say right you have to read these books and, and make them sit down and read them so yeah it's a difficult one um, my son reads a lot and has a bedroom full of books but my daughter doesn't. No, Dutch and English, uh, I have a friend, uh, a colleague uh, who is from Netherlands. He's from Amstelveen, I guess. So I hear that Dutch and English are sonically very different, I felt. In the sounds, in the, yeah, the guttural. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dutch can sound like someone with a throat infection, can't it? How does it impact you as a translator? Oh, the sounds. Um, well, I do a lot of poetry. Um, and so you notice that, that, that certain sounds like, um, you know, there's a lot of Zs in Dutch, Gs and Ws. Um, and you notice those being repeated in poetry. And also the syntax means that the verbs go at the end of the sentence sometimes and they're regular, so they all rhyme. So Dutch rhymes a lot more easily than English does. Um, English poetry like rhymes by being archaic or by being incredibly clever and um, there doesn't seem to be anything in between whereas Dutch you could rhyme without too much effort um, and the sounds. so I, I look for comparable English sounds 
So instead of Zs and Ws and Gs, then it might be um, Ss and Ns and I think Ls maybe, I don't know. We can't talk about all the books that you translated. I guess there are over 40, if I am right. Mm. right? Yeah. So a couple of books I picked up from them, from the list. One is the Seaweed Collector's Handbook. Have you, have you got a copy of that? I don't have a copy. It's the most amazing book. You should get one. It's Oh my God, it's got everything in it. It's got the most amazing pictures, drawings. It's got recipes. Yeah, art, um, poetry. It's it's a true uh, miscellany. This <laughs> is, you know, word for this kind of book. Yeah, yeah. And I absolutely love doing it. Because seaweed is important uh, ecologically too. That's right, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a whole section about that, farming with seaweed. Uh, for, yeah, using it as, as food for cattle. Seaweed book is about everything seaweed. So it's about, yeah, so the ecological uses of seaweed. Um, so um, seaweed farming, see, eating seaweed, um, seaweed uh, as, as, as agar, which is jelly. So it's a, it's a gel substance, so you can use it to set substances. Um, but it's about seaweed in art, seaweed in culture, seaweed in films. Seaweed in poetry, uh, just just everything that you could think of about seaweed. <laughs> yeah, it, it's whimsical. So the writer Meek Swanborn, who um, lives up in Scotland, she's Dutch, but she moved to Scotland. She um, she just wrote about everything that kind of took her fancy about seaweed and and started researching it and drawing it. And she's an artist herself, and and just saw where that took her in terms of you know this kind of amazing book with that goes in all kinds of directions yes i have a friend uh, who is uh, doing research on seaweed okay yeah till that time i never knew about the importance of seaweed and ecologically you know how it is keeping things in check all that i didn't know she was the one who told mm, me. the oceans yeah 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 it's like the forest forest of the seas you can call it yes 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 the whole biodiversity of the ocean and all that. Yeah. And uh, now the Booker Prize winning the discomfort of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, it's a less comfortable subject than, than seaweed, you know. <laughs> yeah, please, please uh, take us through the book. So the, the discomfort of evening is, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's about a, a young girl of 10 who, um, grows up in a farming family and her her brother is killed in an accident and and the family falls apart and it's about that process of disintegration and and the emotional neglect that the children suffer because of the parents own grief um and it's beautifully written it's a debut um was hard to translate because it's got such emotionally harrowing scenes in it yeah it's probably hard to read, but I think it's probably harder to translate because you'd spend more time, <laughs> you know, and, and, and as you translate, you think you uh, picture everything and, and you go through it emotionally as well, I think, to produce the translation. Was it a commissioned project or you approached the author for translation? No, no, no. I got, I got commissioned to do the translation. The Dutch publisher got me to do a sample and then Faber in England bought the rights and then asked me to do the rest of the book. Now, coming to We Are Light. It's a very, very, very interesting book. Very interesting book. Mm, I will talk about more, uh, you know, after some time. Now, please introduce uh, the book and its author. 
Yeah, so we are light. It's called Wezen Licht in Dutch. And it's by Gerda Blaise. And she is a debut writer. So this is her first novel. Um, so I can't tell you about her other books because they don't exist yet. Um, although she is a poet. She, she has published poetry. Um, and it did really well, actually. It, it um, won some prizes, um, which it'll probably say some of which, which they were. The EU Literature Prize and the Dutch Booksellers Award. And it was shortlisted for the Libris, which is a big Dutch literary prize. And it's kind of, it's almost like a, a murder mystery in a way, but it's not. It's a literary novel. You know what I mean? Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's about a woman who dies and it's about the circumstances surrounding her death. Um, but it's very uh, experimental because it's told from the perspective of, of all kinds of strange things, not just people like the parents and her sister, but also we are goat wool socks, we are a pen. Yes. We are the pre preliminary findings. We are a cello. <laughs> yeah. We are light, obviously. Yeah. Crime scene starts stacking the water. The crime scene itself and the story, like the plotting, also tells the story of his. Uh, yeah, yeah. Totally meta, yeah. But fun. I mean, it's very readable in, in its experimentalness. I read somewhere that uh, there's a backstory to it. You know, how she started writing about it, right? She read an article in a paper and started writing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's based on something that actually happened. Uh, this woman who starved to death because she was convinced that she could live on light. Uh, that's why we are light. <laughs> and and um, so she's just stopped eating and, and she she was convinced that the universe, the, that sunlight would nourish her. Um, and so the book explores how... How can that happen? How can a person with a reasonable level of intelligence and a support network, really, because she has a family, she, her sister lives with her and, and she has flatmates, but how, how she ends up dead? What's interesting to me, among other things, among various other things, you know, every chapter, all these 25 chapters, 25 different voices, um, every chapter starts with the we, right, the pronoun. Mm. Uh, mm. What was the writer trying to refer to when they say we are, we are, we are? Yeah, it's everything is a collective voice, a collective voice. <laughs> and why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not I am light, it's we are light. I think maybe it's the particles of everything, you know, in the universe. <laughs> Everything's made up of lots of, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask Heather. Is she referring to all of us when you say that, see, it's about... Uh, Self-deception and uh, like uh, having mm. a cult-like mentality and uh... cult-like mentality and 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 so it, I suppose we is very inclusive, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's also about culpability. It's about who is responsible and 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 was this neglect of society, the parents, the sister, yeah, the police. Uh, as if uh, we are all involved in the crime. I think that's the. We, yes, that's a good way of seeing it. Yeah. I had that feeling when I was reading it, reading the book. Now, 25 different voices and uh, different perspectives. Uh, what was translating the book like? Um, really good fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in, in the sea, the seaweed book was really good fun because I it took me all over the place, and and this one did, but in terms of style and approach, 
um, and they're all they're all told in the same voice. You know, it's all one book, obviously, and it. Um, but each each different narrator, collective narrator, has a slightly different style. Even in some passages, uh, some chapters, the sentences were longer. In some chapters, sentences were very short. So, so I had to make sure that I I saw that in the Dutch and and didn't translate it away from it, but into it. So, to to keep the same um, the same patterns, patterns of narration, uh, the same pacing, mm -hmm. uh, and try and get the sense of of what a pen would sound like <laughs> if it could talk. <laughs> Or the scent of oranges, that's the funniest one. Right, right. Yeah. See, I have seen the uh, same book, like you said in the beginning, when you are introducing the book. I have read the books where uh, characters, uh, the book is uh, divided into different chapters, which, where each character comes and starts talking about, right, in a different point of view, their own point of view they present. But I have never seen a book where things, there are certain things, inanimate things also starts speaking in the book. That's very special, I guess, about the book. <laughs> it's very unusual. Also, also that the whole thing's uh, like a murder mystery. <laughs> it's a kind of detective novel in a way about how to, you know, and you have to piece together the circumstances of the death. And, and it's a short novel. It's not a very long, uh, you know, kind of a thing. It's, I think, about 200, 250 pages, so not more than that. Yeah, it's quite short. It's quite short. Um, let's have a look. It's 229 pages. Mm. You had any, you had to seek any clarifications from the author when you were doing it? Um, not too much. I just had a look back at my correspondence with her um, because I was translating this during uh, during the lockdowns. So I, I didn't meet her till much later. Um, but I'd, we'd emailed and, um, and I'd asked about the name of the commune, which is sound and love. But the word for sound in Dutch is clunk, clunk. It's not just sound, but it's also resonance and tone. Um, so I was never really happy with sound as a translation of clunk, but I'd never found a better solution for it in the end. Uh, I, I'd asked her about, you know, when you called it um, sound, sound and love commune, what, where did that come from? And, and what, did, what were the most important things you wanted to suggest with this name? Yeah. Um, and I asked her a couple of musical things. And then actually um, I got... a a colleague, a fellow translator who is a classical musician to read through the book and check all the music things for me, which is which is really which is really useful if you if you've got someone to do something like that. Yeah, the cello cello yeah. starts talking too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What are you currently working on, Michelle? Um, I'm working on a book called Anti Boy. This one. It's a very short memoir for Seagull Books which is also part, partly set in India, yeah. Um, it's a coming of gender story um, about, um, yeah, Valentine who, who has to have a um, breast operation because uh, at the time it's a she discovers that they have the um, breast cancer gene and, and this triggers a, a complete reappraisal of, of gender. And, it, and it's, it's a, yeah, it's a very moving short book. Be published next year, I think. What stage are you in? You're about to finish it, or I'm about to finish the translation. Yeah, I've got there's just a little bit left. Okay, okay, I can <laughs> so see that. These, I'll, I'll finish it in the next two weeks, and then uh, I've got a friend reading it as well. So then it will go to my second reader. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's your workflow like? Translation workflow. It's like a lot of juggling. 
um, because yeah, the thing is, translating books is really not very well paid. So if you need to pay the bills, and I've got two children as well, um, so I need to do other things on the side. <laughs> yeah, it's honest, isn't it? <laughs> Make it look it's very simple, very ordinary stuff that you're doing anyway. <laughs> but lovely translation, let me tell you, beautifully translated. I don't know Dutch, but I really loved the way. Yeah. I only as a reader. Hmm, who want to know the source language i only look at the language and the flow of the language how you constructed it i really liked it oh thank you very much yeah and it's a very interesting book too actually very very interesting and thought provoking book um the we are light one yeah 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 i thought so too yeah got a really nice review in the um la review of books in america really long like serious review it's amazing I think recently it has come out, right? In 23, right? It came out this year, yeah. Yeah. And and Gerda, Gerda went to England to promote it. She, she appeared at a couple of festivals this summer. Yeah. Then uh, please read a passage from the book, both in English and in Dutch. Chapter 22. We are a pen. A brand new white pen with the police department's logo on the side. We have been lying on a pile of unlined A4 paper on the table in a worried woman's cell since yesterday morning, waiting for her to do something with us. Before we got here, we spent months in a large crate, along with hundreds of other identical pens, until we, till we were taken out and moved to a pen pot that contained some pencils and a few older, more experienced pens. And now it looks like we'll finally be able to do what we have been preparing for all our short life, writing. Being held by someone between thumb, index and middle finger, placed against a piece of paper, and then making words together with the writer, maybe even sentences, even though that's not so common anymore, according to the older pens. People prefer to use their computers or telephones, whereas the older pens find an eternal shame, a loss for humankind and for penkind too, since the pen is the most direct medium to connect human to text, they say, the only medium in which the contents are contained not just in the words, but also in the way they are written. That's to say the exact way the writer has allowed the pen to glide over the paper, hurried or slow, hesitant or self-assured, careless or precise, so that it is a genuine loss that today the pen has largely been condemned to do the writing of shopping and to-do lists, while the really important texts like letters and even scribbled notes are farmed out to those standoffish devices. Wij zijn een pen, een gloednieuwe witte pen met het logo van de politie op de zijkant. Sinds gisterochtend liggen we samen met een stapeltje ongelineerd A4-papier op het tafeltje in de cel van een bezorgde vrouw te wachten tot ze iets met ons gaat doen. Voordat we hier terechtkwamen, lagen we al maanden in een grote bak, samen met honderden andere identieke pennen, tot we hieruit werden gehaald en verplaatst naar een bakje met wat potloden en een paar oudere, meer ervaren pennen. En nu ziet het er dan eindelijk naar uit dat we zullen gaan doen waar we al ons hele korte leven op hebben voorbereid. Schrijven. Door iemand tussen duim, wijsvinger en middelvinger worden genomen. Op een stuk papier worden geplaatst en dan samen met de schrijver woorden maken. En misschien wel zinnen. Al is dat laatste volgens de oudere pennen niet meer zo gangbaar. Daar gebruiken mensen tegenwoordig liever hun computer voor of een telefoon. Wat de ouderen eeuwig zonde vinden. Een verlies voor mens en pen. Want de pen is het meest directe medium tussen de mens en de tekst, zeggen zij. Het enige medium waarbij je aan de woorden niet alleen de inhoud kunt aflezen van wat er is geschreven, maar ook hoe het werd opgeschreven. 
Dat wil zeggen op welke exacte manier de schrijver de pen over het papier liet glijden. Haastig of langzaam, aarzelend of zelfverzekerd, slordig of precies. Zodat het toch een groot verlies is dat de pen vandaag de dag grotendeels veroordeeld is tot het schrijven van boodschappen en takenlijstjes. Terwijl de echt belangrijke teksten, zoals brieven en zelfs kattenbelletjes, worden uitbesteed aan een van die afstandelijke apparaten. Thank you, thank you Michel, for such a lovely conversation. Oké, okay. well, it was really nice talking to you.